Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for all things Kings of War. as they delve into the world of Mantica and bring you in-depth coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Counter Church. I'm Steve Hildry. I'm Ben Stoddard. I'm Vince Rossbond. And I'm Mark Zelensky. Welcome to another episode of the Narrative Workshop. Tonight, we are joined in the workshop by three experts with regards to those most noble of races, the elves. But first, why don't we go ahead and introduce our special guest to the Countercharge audience. Now, Vince, uh, you're almost becoming a cast member. You've been on the show so much, so you might lose this special guest status here, my friend. But uh... Gosh, well, let's see. We published our first Mantic novel, Steps to Deliverance, which, which is quite exciting. We've been to Historicon, which was... Also quite fun. And then we're, uh, we're getting ready to get the next few uh, Mantic novels out. So everyone busy away scribing in little books with their quill pens. Do they still use quill pens there uh, over their events? I know you're trying to go for that authentic look. So, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, we're, you know, we're, we're very busy. And then we convert them over to digital. So it, it, that, that's how we do things here. Is there any update on the audio book that we might be getting for Steps of Deliverance? Yep, just that you, uh, we we have contracted to do it. I just don't know when it's going to come out. Hopefully within the next couple of months. Person who does it, Ray Greenley, does a great job for us. He also does all our Martian Front books. Great guy to work with. Does good audio and good production. Fantastic. All right, sounds good. Well, I'm glad you could join us today. Mr. Hildrew, you've been busy. I know that. I had a tournament this weekend, I know. That's right. Yeah, no, I've, it's been a really busy, busy time, hobby-wise. But before before the tournament, I'd say I have in my hands the first hard copy, uh, the first novel hard copy, Steps to Deliverance. And, and I'm sure we'll co- we covered it quite a lot already, but I have to say it was excellent. I literally could not put it down. What a fantastic book it was. So that was really great. So I've been reading through that. And I've been painting rats and rats and rats and rats. And oh, my God. But I finished my 2000 point list and then immediately rewrote my 2000 point list so that then I have to paint more stuff, which was slightly frustrating. This weekend, I took them for the first tournament. So I took them down to Shroud of the Reaper, which we've covered before on Counter Charge uh, a year ago, in fact, more than a year ago um, for their last tournament. This is their third tournament. Uh, and that was a really good time. And we got uh, lots of interviews. I met quite a few kind of celebrities in the, in the, uh, the UK tournaments here. That was quite exciting. I met uh, Rusty Shackelford for the first time, who goes to nearly every tournament we have in the UK. But you will have seen his incredibly painted uh, Abyssal Dwarfs on if you're a part of the uh, Kings of War Fanatics group. So it was really, really nice to meet him. And he's a super nice guy. But it was a, a great tournament. It was um, run really smoothly. And uh, yeah, good time was had by all. Although I am shattered from a lot of driving and a lot of playing. My back um, is... <laughs> is a nest of pain from leaning over war game tables for, for a day or so. So um, apart from that, I've just got a few little rats to finish and I should be ready for the next one. And if you have any tips for hobby burnout, Mark, I would be delighted to hear them because I never want to paint another model in my life. I swear to God, horde armies. If you've had a horde army like goblins or rats or I don't know, salamanders or men, and you've painted them all um, from scratch, then I have the utmost respect for you because wow, that is a lot of models to get through. 
Sure, you say that now, but after the pain goes away, you'll be back going, I want to do it again. Do you know what? It's funny. You're absolutely right. Because I finished the 2000 points and I was like, oh, I never want to paint again. And then about a day and a half later, I was like, yeah, kind of, kind of want to do a little bit more. And then started immediately into another horde like some fool that I am. But uh, yeah, at the moment, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> well, on top of all that painting, you did all that converting, too. I mean, those are all vermin. I mean, aren't they? They are. So they've been, the slaves are all kind of uh, other Mantic models, but they're all converted as well. There's, uh, actually, it was, I, I kind of um, I learned a lot doing this army because it was my first kind of fully converted, fully Mantic army and all that kind of stuff. And I put a huge amount of work into it. But because they're rats and I kind of had them on a muddy base, what I've created is a kind of a sea of brown. So they've got, um, and they've got all kind of rusty armor. I put kind of like a thought, quite a lot of thought into how they look. Um, but I've created a very brown army. Despite the different shades of brown I've used, it's not very striking. And um, one of the things about the tournament was the level of painting was very high, really, really high. And I was, it was really pleasing to see how really very strong people's painting is. And it's the difference between a very striking paint job. Like Rusty Shackleford is a great example where it grabs you from like two tables away. You're like, wow, what is that? And you go over and have a look. Whereas my army, you, you could miss uh, on a brown table. I'm not being funny because uh, while I put a lot of work into it and I'm quite pleased with the standard, um, it is kind of quite forgettable. And I think part of the art of creating an army is creating something that really grabs someone. So I'm going to take that. If I can ever bring myself to another army, I'm going to I'm going to um, take that forward. And having said that, I got a steel of the century. Having said that, I'm not going to buy any more armies, and I'm I'm, I'm good with because I've still got a dwarf army that I've not painted. Uh, and there's a few elf units I need to do. I got a steal of a century and picked up an entire undead army, over 200 models for only 50 pounds. And it, it needs a lot of work and a lot of construction. And I'm kind of looking at that thinking, can I bring myself to do this again? Because that's another huge, but I think it's undead are a little bit easier, right? Because it's just, uh... but then so, so this is the lesson I was taking forward, which is that you can do undead very easily because they're just bone and a bit of armor and that, but to make them visually striking, to make them something people actually want to look at would take uh, something else. So I need to think about color schemes and color palettes and all that kind of stuff. Also might be a job for those new contrast paints. They kind of pop a little bit with some bright colors. So you might be able to pull that off and paint it more quickly. So I, I find the contrast paints, I find their color to be quite kind of insipid. It's kind of like, it's, I don't find it as striking. I think the whites and the yellows are great. Um, because they're quite bright colors but a lot of the kind of i think you may have to do a couple of coats maybe to get a stronger color or at least put some highlights onto them because i find the color on their own to be kind of forgettable a slightly paler color because it's, it's it's intended isn't it for doing a large amount of models in a short amount of time but not necessarily giving that kind of that pop that people look for yeah but the thing about like the mantic undead is the bone's fine you can do that really easily it's all the little bits and pieces the shabby bits of armor and clothing that that really allows you to play around with it. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And you know, some of the models have a lot more detail. So the Soul Reavers have a lot more kind of they've got big flowing cloaks on them. And I've got let's see what I've got here, a bunch of zombies that are you know, there's kind of the rotting flesh stuff you can do. I think Undead's been done so uh, quite well by a lot of people. So people are kind of tired of looking at it a little bit. But you can you could definitely put a lot more work into an undead army, but uh, maybe Maybe for the for the winter when the when the nights grow long and uh, we're we're trapped indoors a little bit more, I might I might look at that as my next one. And the undead come out. Oh, I'm sorry, that doesn't happen really. <laughs> In England, they do. Yeah, yes. they, they they prowl the graveyards <laughs> of of the UK. <laughs> All right, sounds good. So Ben, what have you been up to lately? 
You can go over to Dash 28 and you can check out my elf army that I'm doing. I'm doing samurai elves with all the Japanese dragons and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm really liking it. And you talk about Daniel Reed's uh, elves and all that kind of stuff. He was part of the, he, I called him up to talk to him and chat with him and all that kind of stuff to get pointers. And he is a phenomenal painter. He gave me a lot of, uh, a lot of pointers about how to up my paint game and, contrasting my first army or my first unit in this army to the current unit in my army it's amazing to see the amount of growth that i got from just one basically one day of me sitting down and taking pictures of a unit and sending it to him and saying what else do i need to do and him sending back pointers and me following through with that and realizing just how far how much further i needed to go with all my models that i had previously thought were finished as to where he takes them to basically and it's really kind of cool to see that that process with him so if folks aren't familiar with Dash 28, why don't you fill them in? Sure. Uh, Dash 28 is one of our uh, websites. I know Rob's talked about it in the past. Um, and we have uh, Jake. I, everybody calls him Chupacabra because I can't, I can't remember how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> um, but we have Jake, um, who's, who's the head editor of it, if you will. And he, he got together with a bunch of uh, people around the hobby, basically, and said, hey, we'd like to put together a resource that we can post regular articles about, we can have discussions about. Um, and so every every week there's going to be at least a couple articles that are published on this website, and it's dash28.org, so D-A-S-H, the number 28.org. Uh, you can go there. We're constantly updating with hobby updates, event uh, information, um, articles on tactics, uh, articles on for running better events, things of that nature. And so it's it's kind of runs the gambit as to as far as what you can find there. And there's literally something for every kind of player uh, in the hobby. So if you're all caught up with all the podcasts, with all counter charge and all that kind of stuff, and you still feel that that itch. Head on over to Dash 28 and check out some of the articles there. There's some really cool fluff pieces. There's some, there's just literally anything that you could want from a hobby website. Go check it out. Again, that's dash28.org. That's right. And you don't have to be uh, caught up on countercharge to go over there, you know, because most of the countercharge staff is over there writing anyways. Ben's over there, Rob's over there, Jeremy's over there, Dan's over there. So, <laughs> I mean, there's lots and lots of stuff over there, which is fantastic. So it's kind of the fan-based answer to Warhammer community, I think. So, you know, for Kings of War. So if you want to get involved, you just have to reach out to Jake. And uh, I'm sure that he will take you on board and you know, let you get involved with all the action. But uh, they're doing a very nice job over there. So if you get a chance, it's really even hard to keep up with all the content. There's so much of it coming out. And their tagline is a legion of content for Kings of War or something like that. So, and it certainly is. For myself, well, I have been playing around with those aforementioned contrast paints. I am getting middling results. I see these people painting online with their videos, and I'm looking at them going, how did you do that? It seems like thinning with the medium is a big key and it's going to take a little practice. I saw this one video from this guy that painted like 66 models with contrast paints across ranges, and he's like, yeah, these are pretty crummy paint jobs. I'm looking at them going, holy smokes. So we'll see how it works, but I'm, I've still got to fiddle with them to make them work for me. I just don't like the way they puddle and the way they uh, leave the one big stain in like one of the areas, particularly in the armor plates. You know, maybe for the more organic stuff, it works a little better. But for the armor plates, uh, 
you know, like I said, it's okay for like your basic standard, which is kind of where I'm going anyways, just due to my lack of time lately. But uh, that is the way that it goes. But yeah, that's been my big thing lately, just basically playing around with those. I was going to take the Mantic starter set that's currently out there, and I was going to paint it all up with the contrast paints. But I've kind of backed off on that right now until I can figure out how to make them work. If people wanted it to be a be-all, end-all, it's it's not that. But I, I kind of feel like once you get used to it, if you're familiar working with that, it may be okay for you. Yeah, I think they're designed, aren't they, for, for GW models, which tend to be these days very detailed with lots of nooks and crannies and folds. So I think, you know, stuff like uh, Space Marines, which tend to have kind of more of a flat surface, you really need to edge highlight on top of them to bring them out. But if you've got loads of, like uh, the uh, Stormcast Eternals, there's lots of nooks and crannies and and folds and stuff. And I think that's where contrast paints really work because they'll pull into those into those deep crevices and they'll bring out the colors a lot more. Well, there are a lot of nooks and crannies on the Space Marines. I mean, if you look like at the back of the leg and stuff, they look good. And the one thing about the contrast paints is I was reading somewhere that they're a tenth of the thickness of a regular layer of paint. So they're really translucent. So that's why they don't cover anything, really. Unless you get the darker contrast paints, like over the red. The black will go over the red, and it'll be black. But the stuff's really thin. It's kind of like a, you know, kind of like a, I don't even want to say a glaze. It's just kind of like got a lot of medium in it, and it's just very, very thin, and it tints. It's more like a tint almost. So it's very interesting. Got to play around with it a little bit more and see if I can get it to work for me. Yeah, I mean, GW marketed as a be-all, end-all, basically, for painting armies. So it's like, okay, let's put this to work. So we'll see what can happen. I mean, there's got to be a bit of truth to it, and I think there is, but it is to try to suck you in to get to use it and learn. I, I, I mean, I haven't tried them yet as much. I've seen the videos on it. I've talked to some people. For me, just ar um, Army Painter Shades just does is easy. Yeah. It's this, it, the tones. I love the army painter. I don't like army painter paints. Hands up. I just don't like them because I think they're quite weak. But like strong tones and, and soft tone and those ones, I think they're fantastic tones. And that's essentially what the GW contrast paints are, but with color. And I think you're right, Mark. I think they are, they're like a glaze, but a medium invested paint. And there's been lots of videos where people explain the differences. And I, there was a really great article on Dash 28 that um, I think Jake did, where he compared them to, to inks. And there was, you know, there was notable differences. It's quite interesting to see the kind of the the research people have put into this, trying to unpick what they are. Yeah, I think the inks are a little inks are a little bit too strong. When you use that, it it like stays there. And I think these the it more like a wash or a highlight wash. It it just do, it flows where it's supposed to. Yeah, the one thing everybody is trying to do is crack the formula so they can make it on their own cheaper. So that's what everybody's trying to do in big volume quantities. So I guess it's not that bad if everybody's trying to crack the formula. So, all right, sounds good. Well, hey, Ben, you're our tour guide for tonight. Are you ready to start our journey? Absolutely. So there's a lot of content to go through with this because apart from like Basilia, uh, there's honestly more lore for the elves than almost any other army or faction that I can find in uh, Kings of War. Something though that I do want to point out before we get started um, is the elves, the, the elf army as it exists presently is an evolving fluff, uh, has an evolving story that goes behind it. They started out as kind of like just a, a filler 
thing be, with Kings of War being about um, selling armies and and giving getting models out there and all that kind of stuff. So the the story behind the elves starts out pretty much the same as or similar to all the different elven armies that you've seen throughout um, the history of games. They have that, they're, they're that haughty, arrogant, but graceful and proud race that's found basically in every D&D campaign you can find or any Tolkien fantasy-esque setting in the last 75 years or so. But that being said, as I was saying before, their story's evolving presently. So their, their story's going from this kind of uh, basic elf build and is becoming something much more interesting and as the as the story of the world is developing both with the novels and with the uh, with the extended books and the supplements that are coming out things of that nature it's just it's becoming a little bit the depth of their story is becoming more apparent one big thing that separates mantic elves from other settings is that the elves in this one, they aren't like, like in Tolkien, they seem almost like the disappointed parents that are sitting there shaking their heads at the younger races for all their poor choices and all that. That is not the case with mantic. In fact, uh, the, the two big bads of this world, uh, the night stalkers and the abyssals are both traced directly back to one elf, um, which we all know as uh Kalasor Fenulian. Uh, and before his apocalyptically bad choice, uh, he's seen as basically the the standard of what elves should aspire to become. They are a very flawed race. They are not this. Uh, they they have their wise people and all that kind of stuff, but a lot more of their arrogance that gets in the way, and so they're much more uh, they're much more flawed, and in that way, more round characters than that. So. That's the first uh, claim that the elves have that's, that makes them that sets them apart from the other elf factions that you've seen throughout all your other settings and all that. So going through their history, you can't you can't talk about the elves without talking about Kalasor Fenulian. He is he is where it all starts basically. He's considered the greatest elf hero to ever live. The only hero that's kind of goes above him basically as far as what he accomplishes and how he's affected the world possibly is Valandor who we'll talk a bit more about him a little bit later on it never really clarifies whether or not Valandor is an elf but we'll talk about him a little bit later on because he does come into effect the elven history too um so he's uh Kalasor is considered the the elf of elves kind of thing but he's also kind of the dumbest elf because he he makes the Fenulian mirror his arrogance his hubris gets in the way uh which we all know the story he falls in love with um uh, elena thora and who's a who's a daughter of prima banter a human and she won't have anything to do with him and because he can't handle the rejection and move on move on with his life he sits and he pines over and he goes after her and he keeps doing that kind of stuff until he's tricked by oskin the, the presumably one of the not so good Celestians at the time, and he forges the Fenulian mirror, which of course includes part of the essence of the Celestians. And when uh, Elenathora rejects him again, that time she shatters the mirror and it splits the whole world in two, basically, especially the the Celestians, and creates the shining ones and the wicked ones. After that happens, we don't really hear anything about Kalasor. Uh, we don't hear how or even if he perished in the God Wars or whatever it is. 
um, or if some maybe he's still wandering around. That could be a very interesting story to to talk about. Uh, maybe maybe he didn't die, or maybe he went on to do other things, or maybe he took on a different name. Maybe no, I'm just saying nobody's seen him and Valandor in the same room, kind of thing. Maybe he has something along those lines, but it doesn't seem as though at least overtly that he was able to achieve any kind of redemption for his fall with the mirror. But at that point, that's kind of where the elves kind of take a secondary role to the newly formed shining ones and all that kind of stuff in the God war, the elves fight in the God war, but they don't really do anything that's really noteworthy other than being present and offering troops up and, and actively fighting to defeat the wicked ones. And after that, it basically falls into, they're trying to pick up the pieces and all that kind of stuff. And you don't really hear too much about them until the war with winter. In all honesty, this is a, this is a big old block of time. The war with winter takes 150 years. And during that time, the elves are fighting with them. Um, and it sees the rise of Valandor. This is where we're going to talk a bit more about him. And again, Valandor, it doesn't really clarify that he's an elf or a man. Uh, we know he's not a dwarf, but he's one of those two races. He's either an elf or a man. It doesn't really specify my money is that he's an elf based off of how he chooses to fight and all that kind of stuff um but you see him in in the brotherhood history and the uh, uncharted empires how he helps the brotherhood preserve part of their uh culture and all that kind of stuff but he also goes to and he dies in the elven capital which is where he makes his last stand and he's 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 a big part of the history of mantica so after the 150 years is over and winter is defeated, uh, she basically attacked the world. It was a very interesting idea. Her armies weren't flesh and blood. They were literal glaciers that were moving down thing. And so when she's defeated, those glaciers no longer have the magic that's holding them together. And so they flood the world, create the infancy and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think that the elves were the ones that were hit the hardest by this apocalyptic uh, flash flooding, basically. Uh, they literally lost half of their population. 50% of their population is wiped out in one cataclysmic event. It also floods more of their territories, and it almost destroys their capital of Therenia Adar, which if I'm, I'm probably butchering all the pronunciations for these, but their capital city of Therenia Adar was almost flooded as well, and it was Valandor who holds that back. He literally creates these walls around the city uh, to, to block out this newly formed ocean. And the walls are hundreds of feet, or at least are over 100 feet tall. Um, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about Therenia Adar a little bit later on too. But it since has changed its name and is now, the, na- the city of Therenia Adar is now more well known as Waldeep. And, and it created the, what, it turned the, um, I think it's the Western Kindred into what's called the Sea Kin or the Sea Kindred. Uh, they're your your Corsair elves and all that kind of stuff. So Valandor, in doing this though, it basically it drains everything out of him, and he dies defending the the city from this this magical flood. Uh, however, his corpse still sits in the highest tower of Waldeep, which is the only building that extends up above the walls, kind of thing. Um, and it and it's not decomposing. 
the the explanation in the book is that the the tides of magic flow differently around him and because of all the residue of that it's not allowing time to pass and so his body has not decomposed at all so that has given rise to the legend that valandor is not actually dead but it, rather that he is just in like a magic coma and that one day he's going to wake up and when he does it'll be the ends end of the time of war which sounds really familiar and hopefully we can do this without a twin-tailed comet streaking through the sky kind of thing that's basically the story up through winter the war with winter which then literally completely reshapes the entire civilization of the elves because i don't think we've seen in the world that we know uh, a civilization suffer a 50 percent casualty rate from a single cataclysmic event and survive like legitimately even the black plague was only a one in four kind of thing and that and we saw how drastically that changed just interactions between people and different classes and the elves that they they were over double that kind of thing there was there's a huge turnover as to how everything worked i imagine and it's surprising that they were able to recover from it the biggest thing that besides the fact that there was the all of that death and all that kind of stuff they decided to move their uh capital that was the renia adar or wall deep as it's known now and they moved it to the twilight glade um where it where it stayed until the recent events of the of the edge of the abyss campaign where the night stalkers literally ripped a hole in the fabric of reality and started spilling out and and attacking all of the the elves and basically destroying once again uh the center of elven culture it seems like the elves can't catch a break as far as whenever there's a major event their capital gets destroyed beyond that it seems like the elves also are trying to be good but it seems like the world is trying to push them more down an evil path. We don't know if their mage queen is still alive at this point. Their main named character that we have right now, Lafael Silverheart, which, by the way, has a very similar name to their mage queen, who is Larenth Silver Branch. So they're, they're two different people. But this Silverheart, she um, is part of the reason, according to the fluff in the Edge of the Abyss book, is she's the reason that the Night Stalkers were able to get into the elf she opened the door for them quite literally as the story describes and on top of that they describe her as being like this kind of terrifying person not only for her enemies but the people who fight alongside of her and she has as far as rules are concerned the mind thirst um ability which is a very nice is exclusively for night stalkers kind of thing so it's kind of an interesting thing that the the main character that they have for her for for the elves is this dark and kind of twisted person she and on top of that she got all this information about this dark magic that she uses from these books that were given to her and it's only referenced once and it's just a throwaway reference to this mysterious stranger that's literally what they call him it's on page 30 under her uh, unit description of the edge of the abyss book and she she's just given these books and that's how she learns her dark magics that she has and how she uses that. So um, that's that brings us up to the present with the elves. They're still trying to figure out what happened after the Edge of the Abyss events. They're still trying to to rebuild again for their third time now from all of their the problems that have fallen from them. So the elves are always a major player or a major participant in whatever big turn of events happens with the world. 
and they're always pretty pivotal players. But every time they come off the worst for it, they're always rebuilding after it and in a very critical way kind of thing. So that's their history. Uh, going in a little bit to their culture now, what they are like as they stand currently. Um, the elves are kind of like the Skittles of the world of Mantica. They're, they come in every flavor that you can imagine. And they're kind of like, and I hate to use this reference, but they're kind of like the space marines of 40K kind of thing, is in that there's so many different types of elves in the world that you could literally just invent something and it would fit within the, the fluff of Mantica, basically. Now, that being said, uh, there are eight main kins or kindreds, if you will, that kind of are covered in the books. Uh, the first is the northern kindred. Uh, this is where their mage queen is from. And the mage queen is like their high king kind of thing. She's the, the person that all of them loosely, all the kindreds loosely uh, swear fealty to, even the twilight kin. So all, all elves basically see the mage queen as like their supreme authority, at least on some level. Some of them follow her more in spirit than in letter and so on and so forth. But she's the one that they, um, that they claim as their head leader. Uh, and the Northern Kindred are the ones that um, is where she's from and kind of like the Northern Kindred are kind of like Imperial Elves, but with a slightly natural uh, nature twist to them. Like all elves are very closely tied to nature. So after the Northern Kindred, you have the Sea Kindred. These guys used to be the Western Kindred, but the destruction of most of their lands by the end of winter and that flooding um, turned them, forced them to take a more nautical approach to their to their culture. They used to ha they used to be the the capitalists that lived in Therenia Adar, and now um, winter basically just j dumped this apocalyptic bucket of water on them, and only a few of their cities that were on the highest mountain peaks still survived, and they make up the broken uh, the broken wall islands and. Wall deep are basically their last surviving points of civilization. Beyond that, they're a very naval culture, and they they're the ones that make up the elves' navy, basically. And they're more at home on a ship than they are in the forests and that kind of stuff. After that, you have the you have the the Sylvan kindred. Basically, these guys are your basic wood elves. They, they are closely tied to the Green Lady. They live in Galahir. They honestly swear more fealty to the Green Lady and the forces of nature, really, than they do to the elves and all of that. Um, they're the reasons we have, like, the forest shamblers and the wild hunters and the army list and that kind of stuff. Then you have the dragon kindred. These guys live in between the what was what's left of the western kindred and the twilight glades in the mountains of um, what was that called again? The Alandar Mountains. Um, and these guys are the ones that have a are probably the most intact culture of the elves. They're the ones that have the close ties to the dragons, hence their name. Um, and it's basically they're the ones that give you the dragon lords and the dragon riders kind of thing. They're not where the Dracon riders come from, but they're the ones that have the actual full-fledged mystical dragons and all that kind of stuff. And as such, because they have this intact uh, cultural identity and all that, they have a large amount and overly not representative of how big their population is because they're the smallest population, but they have the greatest political power, basically, because of their ties to the dragons and their 
unparalleled uh, connection to the past. So the dragon kindred are kind of the most, they're, they're even arrogant by elven standards. So take that for what you will. Um, after the dragon kindred, Eastern kindred, uh, these guys were used to be the kind of party going fun, loving kind of elves. They were the singing and dancing and smiles and all that kind of stuff before the war with winter. Uh, now that it's like they, they lost their sense of fun. They're very dour. They're very stoic, if you will. This is where you get your Dracon riders though, uh, is from the Eastern kindred in their lands. Now they don't really have any cities because they tend to move around a lot, which makes sense because if most of their armies are formed of Dracon riders kind of makes sense that they wouldn't stay in place very much with a, with such a high amount of mobility and all that kind of stuff. After the Eastern Kindred, you have the Southern Kindred. Again, there's a pattern here of Northeast, Southwest kind of thing. But these guys are your kind of your philosophers and scholars. I like to call them uh, librarian elves uh, because they have the, the majority of the wisdom and the knowledge that the elven race has acquired sits with them. However, the Ophidian Wastes are kind of creeping into their territories. The desert is slowly creeping away and devouring their lands. And this tends to make them really cranky, and they are unwilling to allow anyone in uh, to their libraries to look at their books or anything. Uh, even even their elven kindreds, the other elven kindreds, are sometimes not allowed in because of how particular they are. Um, you have the ice kindred, and there is a bunch of stuff to talk about there because these guys are also known as the Northern Alliance. They're the basis for that. Uh, these guys are so hardcore that they've moved up north far up north and they're the furthest removed physically from all the other kindreds and they are physically different uh, from the other elves. They look different. Their skins changed. They have physically changed how they are. Um, and there's a whole bunch to talk about there, but that could go for another narrative workshop episode, you know, on the Northern Alliance, because that's basically what they're starting with there. So that's the ice kindred way up to the north. Then you have the twilight kin. These, these are the bad guys. These are the four dragon spam, chariot-wielding curmudgeons who claim that the world is ending. They're not really wrong. Uh, they feel like the sun is set on the time of the elves and that it is their destiny to rule over the elven races. These guys are cruel. They're, they are evil. They are the Twilight Kin army list that we have on Easy Army. And with the emergence of the Night Stalkers and the rumors that the Night Stalkers are going to be taking the Twilight Kin in as their, as part of their army rather than the Twilight Kin getting a full rework, it's quite possible that that's how that, that could be the approach that they're taking is that this is the Twilight Kin seeing the Night Stalkers come out and seeing them take over the capital they could take that as this is our right. And so these are, these are our ancestors. That's who the night stalkers are elves mostly that followed Oscan into the realms of, you know, beyond space and time kind of thing. And now they're finding their way back. And so I could see the twilight can being like, these are our ancestors. They're willing to fight alongside us. This proves that we have the moral authority here. And so they don't really have their own place. The Twilight Kin don't. They are also really nomadic and they go all over the place, but they always had before, you know, the Night Stalkers came, they always had representatives in the capital city to represent them. So those are the main kindreds that you can see with the elves. Lots of uh, lots of variety there. 
but also uh, a lot of room to wiggle, if you will. So if you have an idea for elves, which there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of variations, they say that the kindred, the different kindreds can be anything down to a group of wandering elves all the way up to a hidden kingdom that's taken place among uh, the human empires, basically. So many elven kingdoms that have popped up amongst the fledgling kingdoms are also are also things. So the elves are literally everywhere and they're all shapes and sizes and all types of flavors. So if you have an idea for an elf, it can fit within the fluff. Lastly, there's a couple of main uh, places that you can look at or that are important to elven history. First off, there's Waldeep. Uh, it's it's an elven capital back in the time of the Celestians, like we were saying, but with winter came, it got flooded and Valandor raised magical walls, which still stand to this day and are maintained by magic. The cool thing about it is the walls, they stick about 40 feet above the, the water, but the city itself is over 100 feet below the top of the thing. So it actually sits underwater protected by these magical walls. And the way that the book describes it is that they are in perpetual shadow, meaning that there's really no daylight that gets down into this city. And so you could see that as being an opportunity for for it to become really seedy. But because it exists from the time of the Celestians, you know that it's got a lot of cool architecture, a lot of really fascinating magical thing, oddities that don't exist anywhere else in the world because of how old this city is. So there's an opportunity to go either way with this super seedy where it's always dark, mm-hmm. but also super magical and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Chill is another, say, another city... It sits to the north with the ice kin, and it's an integral integral part of the Northern Alliance. Again, that's something for another episode, but that's going to be a pretty interesting area and an important city for the elves as well as the world. And then you have, and I'm going to butcher this, Iluthar, which was the capital city before the Night Stalkers came in. Um, but we haven't heard anything about what's going on and what's going to happen to this city so there's a lot of story potential there. I could see a really cool story about a group of elves that are sent in to rescue the mage queen because we don't know what's happened to her. And so that's uh, that's the basic idea of the elves right there for you. This is their this is them in a nutshell. There's a lot more that could be discovered and and read through and researched and all that. The elves have a lot of story potential. Uh, what do you, what do you guys think? Is there anything that you think I left out? Well, first, I got to say that your idea that the elves are kind of like the space marines of Mantica is very, very interesting. So that really can give you a lot of modeling opportunities and stuff like that. We'll have to explore that later. But, uh, Steve, you've got an elf army. So what attracted you to the elves? I mean, was it any of the lore? Originally, it wasn't. No, I mean, I started to make elves because uh, my wife said that if I made her an army that was pretty, then she would play me. Um, and so I started to make elves and um, and then I started to make and every time I played them I realized I needed something different and I made something more so I ended up with about four and a half thousand point of elves and then I added uh, various units so I could play them as Twilight can um, but I think the more that I read about them and, and as a small note my wife still hasn't played me at Kings of War but uh, they were, we're getting there um, I think what attracted me to them was one was the way that they play actually on the table. But from a story point of view, once you start to explore the world a little bit more, they're actually really interesting. They're not typical high elves. And about 50% of my army is made up of a mixture of high elves and dark elves out of GW days. But 
they're not that kind of old race that's wiser than everyone else and is um you know looking down and separating itself off it's more like it's it's a young thriving race really that's kind of struggling to make its way in the world despite being so ancient and i think that's really interesting and a lot of the stories draw upon that and the the interaction between the different factions of elves to me is quite fascinating so it's directly referenced in 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 the books that you know the other elf kindreds they're not the enemies of the twilight kin the twilight kin were welcome in the twilight glades and it's just like another another way so there's that that kind of gray morality which sits between them which i found really interesting and i'm kind of interested to see some more kind of fluff come out about how that's changed now that the night stalkers have kind of burst out so i think we'll talk a little bit more about the the edge of the abyss story um but what was clear in that was that um they recognize the Night Stalkers. This is something that's not you know, new to them. It, it's a familiar because it's their ancestors. And there is a definite fear um, that, that's coming, that that's coming to fruition. So I'm really interested to see how that kind of blends out. And I was also, the other small thing that I was interested in recently was talking to the people at Lamantic about uh, the League of Ophidia. I wonder if the dark stranger that gave over those ancient tomes that started their kind of descent to madness might have been one of the League you know, meddling and, and trying yeah. to... It, it seems to me that the, the elves, despite being the oldest race, are the most often fooled. Do you know what I mean? So with their ancient arrogance, they're like a tool that the more nefarious races of Manticore can then use with their power to manipulate the course of history. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And you bring up an interesting point in the fact that despite being one of the oldest races, like they were here when the Celestians came, up, supposedly. They're also the ones that are they're usually the ones that are made the fool of history. Like every time something happens, the elves are either the, the guys who started it. And so all the other races are pissed at them for that. Or they're the ones that come off the worst for it. They're always the ones like in the edge of the abyss, who is the only good guys to receive any kind of damage from, from the events of that, but the elves, everybody else. Yeah. They had like the mammoth Steph's got floated, flooded, and the ogres had to relocate a little bit, but for the most part, all the other races were pretty much safe in the, in the events of the Edge of the Abyss. But the elves, the elves oh, got the Brotherhood probably got a bit, you know, killed. Oh yeah, well. that's true. The <laughs> they don't count though. They're there. No, just... I mean, no one cares about them. <laughs> they can. <yeah>. Hey, <laughs> kids, right. kids, now behave. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that it, it does seem that as a whole, so like, I mean, and even looking at the Brotherhood, the Brotherhood are a faction, um, and they're a pretty small faction. They're not a, they're not a race unto themselves. They're, they're part of the human race, which overall, if you look at the humans, they came out pretty good from the edge of the abyss. The Brotherhood, yeah, they got, they got hit pretty hard. They're still there and they're struggling to, to make it in this new world kind of thing. But the elves are the only race that was completely just devastated by the events of that campaign kind of thing. And so you, if you look at it from that perspective, it, you bring up a very interesting point that the elves always seem to be the brunt of everything. The brunt of the joke, the, the, the quickest to be fooled, the quickest to be manipulated because of their arrogance, because of their hubris. Or sometimes, like in this case, they're still suffering from the choices of their ancestors who made bad choices in who to trust both with Fenulian and with their ancestors that followed Oscan into the into the void basically and ironically in in, in the player's world the elves are still the brunt of the joke absolutely <laughs> I mean, 
Everyone, everyone loves to to rag on the elves, um, so which I find slightly unfair. Then you know, and that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it's kind of a bit of a mirror with the story, in that they're kind of considered to be the most powerful army or one of the most flexible and brilliant armies, but they're not always um, the easiest to play. I think if you no. play a certain style, they are, but actually, um, they're quite difficult to play because they're so elite. Everything is really expensive to reflect how powerful the units are. So I think the fluff and the actual play style has got some nice mirroring. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably one of the most representative armies of how they are represented from the t- from the story to the tabletop. I think you're right. That's another good point. I do think it's a bit difficult because with the separation of the kindreds, you kind of imagine that in the world of Mantica, you've got bunches of dracon riders just kind of floating around, but every army's got one and every army's got mm. a dragon. So there's probably some crafting of stories about how suddenly every army has a representation from from each of the good in inverted comic kindreds but that that's kind of workable with um and i yeah. think you know the idea of dracons to me is 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 quite an exciting idea you know as a, as a long-time fantasy reader the idea of these kind of mobile powerful units to me is really cool and i think that's one of the nicer parts and, and everyone loves a dragon you know a big dragon oh, else were the kind of the first race to kind of not tame but uh reach an alliance with dragons and yeah. so i wouldn't want to play an army that didn't have something draconic in it because they're just so fun oh absolutely that's one of the reasons why we have games like dungeons and dragons i mean you, it's kind of the main fantasy vein thing that you're looking for it's not a true fantasy thing until it has some kind of dragon in it basically or demon or something along those lines but a dragon is very iconic and so i agree with you it's great that they brought it in in such a way that it's not just this one dragon that's taking, that's destroying armies kind of thing, but it's actually like dragons and dracons and all that kind of stuff. Vince, what do you think? You've done a lot of research on the elves. Have you, did I, did I miss anything with, with what we went through? Or is there an interesting point that you found in your research that is something that might be the, you know, epitomizes the elves to you? No, I mean, I I think you've covered probably more exhausting than anything else. In fact, I'm just going to, replay this thing when I, if I do anything else with elves, just because it's been so, so, so good and thorough. No, I mean, I think the thing about elves is, um, everyone has their own view of them, depending on where you come into the hobby and, uh, what you've read. My first introduction to elves is Tolkien, uh, as a lot of people are, but subsequent to that, I mean, I've, I've experienced with them from GW standpoint uh, I've read a lot of Sapkowski, which, if you read his view of elves, is a lot more dark and dirty, <laughs> and and even folklore uh, on on really w- how they first viewed elves as as sort of wood sprites and wood spirits, not always good, sometimes malevolent. Sort of runs the gamut the way you described it, because uh, everyone has a different view of them in in their culture. So uh, yeah, I, I I think you've really really nailed that and uh, the, the the thing i look at it was especially when i was looking at elves is they are sort of like you can mold them to fit your expectation of how you want them to be i mean in some ways just like people you know there are different variations of good and evil and in, in, in everyone absolutely i think that's that's a I think that's a pivotal point of what the elves are and is it's what kind of separates them from all the other uh, settings that you can play in basically is that the elves are not like you said they're not that 
all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful kind of race that Tolkien sets them up to where they're in the twilight years of their of their existence kind of thing. They're getting ready to leave the world. Now, the elves are an active participant and that they're that that they're they encapsulate the whole spectrum of what morality you want to have them for and how they view the world. Well, also, they're going to be, you know, in, in some ways, their whole ethos is going to be shaped what, whatever environment they're growing up in. I mean, if you're living in a scholarly environment, they may be wise, more wise sages than the noble warriors. But if you're on the periphery where you're fighting against all sorts of elements, you're going to take a dark, dirty, almost, uh, you know, I don't give a, you know, heck view of, of life. And, and and that sort of jade you a little bit. Absolutely. And and also going with that perspective is if you're a scholar and all that kind of stuff and you're spending all your time in the libraries and all that kind of stuff, you lack that that experience that gives you that perspective, all that. And so, of course, it's going to elevate you to the point where you, you're an outsider looking in and it kind of affects how you can uh, interact with the world with that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I agree with you. You could have the, the ones that are on the borders fighting for their lives, like the sea kindred who are constantly – they travel the world basically on their ships and they fight all sorts of different creatures and all that kind of stuff. They probably, and, and that's probably not a good environment for books and scrolls and tomes and all that kind of stuff. So they probably don't get to study as much. And so they might be a little bit more um, for lack of a better term, kind of blue collar in their approach to the other races kind of thing where they've interacted more with them. They're not so isolationists as others. And then you take a look at the ice kindred who are also, they're like the front line against some unknown evil. Well, Vince, you may know because you have a little bit more insider information, I imagine, but they're fighting against some at present unknown other evil. And they're kind of that front line kind of thing. And they are welcoming to all races to come up and help them. Well, yeah. And so it's, 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 uh, it's uh, you know, it's the old Churchill of, if the, if Hitler invaded hell, I'd say a few kind words for the devil type thing. You know, you'll, you'll take any, any help in a storm, especially the darker, darker it is you're, you're fighting against. And um, it, it also, I think, again, depending on where they are, and you you have some some elves that get the get the feeling they know everything about war because they've studied it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the ones that are actually doing it are saying that you, you don't want to do that, don't want to do that, no, don't want, uh, I told you not to do that type thing. Sounds like somebody who's trying to watch me play a game with my elves, so. <laughs> <laughs> There was the other, um, the other source of, as well as the Mantic kind of the rule books, as and we'll come on to the edge of the abyss. But there was the book, wasn't there? The Bloodstone of Cerulean. Yes, Jonathan Peace wrote. Who I, I'm really happy to see has come back into the gaming scene recently. Um, he posted on Kings of War Fanatics, but that was back in 2013, and that kind of depicts the elves. And that's where I get the kind of uh, much more of the idea of them as a young a young race or a race that's kind of developing itself. And there's a lot, it focuses on the younger characters there and it doesn't have that tiresome callback to this is an ancient realm, slow, slow to reproduce and every life is sacred kind of thing. And I think that's, that is a nice different take on, on elves to the traditional fantasy elves where you can see them as that kind of the, you know, that bag of Skittles and there are different types of personalities and they are, have the potential to be very strong in the realm of Mantica. But like, but like you say, they, they, they're constantly being beleaguered or used or uh, manipulated and being held back in that way. So that actually the realm is, the, the race is kind of stunted in, in, in development. I think that's really interesting. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up because that also another aspect of that novel that was kind of interesting is that they don't have their closed borders kind of thing. Like like if you go into the forest and you get a bone broken for every twig snapped underfoot, they don't have that kind of hostility towards outside races coming in because they welcome a dwarf embassy. They welcome that interaction and there's a free trade going on between the dwarves and the elves with this ancient artifact that they're trying to keep safe kind of thing in that book. And so you don't have that whole, Oh, the dwarves are such they're they're these dirty old men that live in their mountain homes and they're no good kind of thing. And they deserve to die as much as the orcs kind of thing. But that may be true, but they just don't, you know, they just don't say anything about it. Yeah. They, they (laughs) keep it to themselves. Right. Yeah. They're very much. Yeah, but they still keep their borders open to them and allow that free trade between the other races, which is something that doesn't kind of come into play in a lot of others. The elves are usually reclusive, and this shows them more in an active role within the world, as you were saying, uh, Steve, about how they they aren't this ancient race that's kind of standing off in the background, just kind of ugh. Uh, about what everybody else is doing, but they're actually participating with everybody and all that. Well, because the one thing is that the the when they set up the world of Mantica, they didn't use the Tolkien conceit that they had to have this antagonism between these races. You know, if you want to have that, it could develop on its own, but it wasn't built into the the lore. So it, it gives you a more wide open field on how these things can interact with each other. Yeah, no, and I think that's good that it doesn't have that baggage of something that's been established and has been around for a while, and there's all this heavy lore that goes with it. And and that goes for all things with Mantic, is that we don't have 30 years of retconned and readjusted and and specific lore that's been just sat and tinkered with over the decades, but rather we we have this fresh new world in, in regards to how much has actually gone into it. We're just barely starting to get novels. We're just barely starting to get this fluff that everybody's been craving. And because of that, it doesn't have all the emotional baggage that all the other settings tend to have when they're starting to get to this point of popularity. And so everything's fresh and it's new. And I think that especially goes for the elves, like you were saying, where they are, they're, they're not this frumpy, old men and women in in long flowing robes that just sit off and they don't actually participate in anything, but they just sit there and judge everybody for what they're doing. There's yeah. a couple of other interesting characters as well. I mean, I was lucky enough to get hold of um, a copy of Kings and Legends, which is a supplement for version one from a very long time ago, but it's full of really fascinating fluff and, and little bits and bobs that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. And a couple of the characters that they have in there from elves, there's Elric Nisleen, who's a mage dancer he's um you can still get him on the mantic site uh for mantic points i think but he's just a half and half his father was a battle dancer from the sylvan king and his mother was a mage and so that he's kind of interesting but the one that's a little bit more interesting is argus rodenar sentinel of the elements and he's still in yes. the army so you can still yeah. use him right no one uses him at all full stop and i've I've tried to put him into lists and I fail um, because it's always just better to take something else. And he's very, very cheap, but he's also still available on the Mantic site, but he's available as thinking elf. So they've literally taken his name off him. But the, <laughs> but the, but, uh, or yeah, for the thinking elf elves anyway, but he's, um he's really fascinating. He's got this um, altar of the elements whereby yes. he's an, 
And it says there's something, uh, it mentions this, uh, uh, an ancient god called the player of games, uh, whereby he's um, moving uh, pieces around a granite gaming board. And it says such a move is made only once a millennia, the player of game passing the age long time between moves deep in thought as he ponders the ebb and flow of the contest. And so uh, um, Argus Rodner is is, is, pond, is is moving pieces around a game board, and it's this suggestion that he's connected with this older power. I'd love to see some more elements of these kind of iconic yeah. characters brought back into the game and the fluff, because they were just kind of thrown away a little bit after version one, and I think some of them are really interesting. Yeah, and you bring up an, uh, another interesting point, too, is that, that, that hints that there is deities and, and and greater powers that are older than the Celestians, meaning that there are entities that existed pre or post Celestians, and we don't really have much hint of that. Religion is kind of like a back burner kind of thing for most of the races in this one, apart from Basilia, which that is what they are. They are a religion that's formed into an empire. But apart from them and the shining ones, we don't really get too much into they're into the deities, into the old gods, into all of this kind of stuff that the other races must surely have some kind of belief systems that exist out of there. I mean, we have the Church of the Fallen with the League of Rodia. We have the Varanger and their belief system. And then you just mentioned something that I thought sounded like it would be a fascinating idea for an army is uh, an army based around that chess player kind of thing. Well, we go ahead and slide into a commercial break. We'll come back on the other side, and we're going to dive in to the books that have been written on the elves. And yes, I said books. Hi, I'm Harris Juicenap, and I'm from Warborn Games Club. Hi, I'm Mikey Juicenap, older cousin Harris Juicenap, fellow war gamer, also from Warborn Gamers Club. And you're listening to Countercharge. And welcome back. Well, we've sent Steve Hildrew into the corner. And he's uh, been reading a lot of elf books, haven't you, Steve? Well, I've, I've read one. Um, <laughs> one and a story. So there are indeed two uh, stories um, that kind of delve a little bit further into the elf lore. Um, one of which um, we'll come on to a bit, um, and which uh, Vince is obviously very intimately involved with. But the other one is kind of a little bit um, less well known. But still available, by the way. And uh, I consider a really good story. This is the story that my son actually read when he was doing his reading program at the high school. uh, His freshman year, I think it was. One of those years. And um, it's a good story. And I appreciate it. But Steve, uh, it's been a while since I've read it. I might be able to fill in here or there. But you have freshly come off reading it. And... uh, the name of the book is The Bloodstone of Cerulean. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about it? Right. So The, the Bloodstone of Cerulean is by Jonathan Peace. And it's a, it was a mantic novel back when they were commissioning their own novels before I seen their relationship with Wing Tassar. Um, so uh, Jonathan uh, wrote the book. And I got, I got hold of a hard copy of it, which I was really pleased um, to get. And it covers uh, some young elves uh, and a dwarven hole. There's kind of two aspects of the story, and there's a, a necromancer, a combat in it, um, who is uh, seeking kind of uh, some artifacts to re-raise an undead army. And it's kind of a, it's a, it's, it's kind of, I would describe it kind of like a cross between an adventuring novel and like a dungeon romp. So there's kind of two aspects of it. It's quite pacey, and I think what was really interesting is that, that in the hard copy I've got, there's an author's note at the end where he talks about what he wanted to do with the book, and he'd actually written it quite a lot darker in the original and they asked him to kind of lighten it up a bit and make it a bit more pacey and it follows um some kind of some elven siblings including a young mage uh, out on patrols 
and it, it kind of tracks the slightly deteriorating relationship with the dwarves that they've had. So they were when they were closer, and then the dwarves were attracted into themselves, and then takes you into a dwarven hold. And I think what's interesting about the story is how it depicts the elves, and it kind of gives you that fresh look about how elves are in Mantica, which differentiates them. Because when I first read it, it felt a little bit jarring, because I wasn't that into kind of the the uh, elven lore, and we've all come, you know, everyone knows elves because of Tolkien, right? So they're kind of a fantasy trope, the noble dying race, and they're on the way out. That's not how they're written here. So there are ancient elves, and elves live a long time, but their culture is quite fresh and young. And they mix with other races far more readily than you might imagine from a traditional fantasy race. And it takes you into some of their magic and it takes you into some of their lore and their history. Um, and it gives you kind of a nice picture of Mantica as well and uh, how people travel across it and some of the the interrelationships that go on through there. So it's a, it's a great read. I, I would recommend it to everyone. It was a good book. Not up to steps of deliverance level so i'm glad that we went from that but it was so good to see that first kings of war novel come out in first edition and it's kind of been forgotten so if you really want to check that out you know you can find a copy online if you can't find a copy online i think they i think they still have it at mantic digital i think they do but you'll have to go check it out mantic digital is kind of kind of wavered a little bit so we'll have to see what happens but uh yeah if you're really really interested in it and you can't find it let me know we'll see what we can do for you so but uh yeah very very cool so that was the beginning and we started there and then we got another story in our anthology as you know we normally have the author on the show and we do <laughs> but you guys are saying to yourselves well i didn't see vince rossbond in the book so Vince, can you explain that little story to us? So the, the thing about uh, Wing Hussar is there are, there are two different sides to the company. One is historical history, uh, and the other is literature, obviously, fantasy fiction. So I've tended to write a lot more history, and so when I do history, I write it under my name. When I do fiction, I write it under Bill Donahue, and the reason is Bill Donahue and I were good friend since the fifth grade we've known each other or knew each other and uh, we were original war gamers together back in the 70s so we we played fantasy tolkien history and everything else so when i started doing fiction i asked him do you mind if i use your name this way you'll get you know a little bit of cred and you you i think you get a kick at it and he agreed to so uh, i write him under those unfortunately bill passed away in the uh last year but I still use his name because I, it's sort of a tribute to him and all the gaming that we did over the number of years. Very, very cool. And that other imprint is Zmok, right? Zmok Books. Zmok Books does all the sci-fi, fantasy, horror, speculative literature we do. And uh, it's basically a Polish word for dragon. Love those Polish words. All right. Now, the story that you wrote in the Edge of the Best book uh, was basically with the uh, Night Stalkers. So can you kind of take us through it a little bit? When uh, Brandon was um, divvying out the stories for um, Brandon, our, our editor, who happens to be related to me by some unknown reason, was it, uh, divvying out the stories for the anthology. I said, I, I'd be happy to do one. And he knows that I like the undead and... Uh, vampires and elves and everything in between like that. So ask me if I would do that. I said, Absolutely. And then, uh, then Ronnie and the guys said, Oh, we we're going to include the night stalkers in here. And this is before the night stalkers were readily available. And, um, 
we just had some background material on it that they made available to us. I think we saw some of the models when we were at Mantic Day two years ago in, in, at Adepticon. So I was able to get a little information on that. And then with that, in, with that I tried to sculpt how we envision Night Stalkers to work in a, in a literary world where they are both physical and nightmarish. Yeah, what I found really interesting was what your, your, your story explored was some of the relationship between the Night Stalkers and the Elves that I hadn't quite picked up from the lore previously. And I thought what you depicted incredibly well was how unsettling Elves found Night Stalkers. And that, you know, they, it was, wasn't something new and unexpected. It was something that they were very familiar with when there was kind of that creeping dread that the Elves had from the night stalkers as kind of their own ancestors that have been caught up in the, in the dream kind of in, in the dreamscape sort of thing. Was that something you were consciously exploring? Yes. I mean, I, I kind of feel felt that, you know, if, if the elves and night stalkers at one point had a common ancestry in there and lore, the fact that they're now sort of back in a, in a stronger body is going to impact on the subconsciousness of these elves. There'd be more, they would be more susceptible to the horrors that the night stalkers, you know, would bring about as sort of um, from a, a psychic stance. I mean, they could still fight against them, but they would be more susceptible to the horrors of them. Maybe they, we could bring a, a rule whereby night stalkers cancel elves elite. That would be that would be great. We could bring that anyway. No, maybe not. <laughs> I think all elf players would definitely hate that. But yes. th there was <laughs> but there was other elements as well. What I really loved because, you know, as elf, any elf player will tell you, you know, we're a big fan of dragons, and there was just a little snippet of some dragon lore in there, and you, you know, there was some of that relationship between the dragon lords and their dragons, and all that kind of stuff that you'd wrote into there as well. Just kind of a little hint, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, uh, the 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 point I tried to, you know, I tried to get myself as as up on on the mantic lore as possible, but also trying to draw on, um, you know, different areas of, I guess. Elf lore that I've read over the years. One of the big things I, I try to pull on is um, folklore, and of course, there's not necessarily a deck relationship between dragons and elves and folklore, but just in general, how how sort of uh, creatures in that sort of realm interact with each other. Yeah, and I particularly liked because one of the most difficult things about if you've got a race that's got dragons and elves have this intimate relationship with dragons and they've got a lot of them, you know, part of the thing is can't we just send in the dragons? Can't we just like, <laughs> can't we just do a Game of Thrones and just burn down a city? And I, I thought that was kind of dealt with quite artfully. Yeah, I mean the the thing about uh, anytime you've got dragons, the the temptation is well, well, just it's sort of like if you have tanks, it's just well, we'll just send tanks in and blah blah blah. But that obviously that's not going to be available to everyone. It's not always the answer, and there's always going to be some something that's going to stand away. Otherwise, they would just do it all the time, and where would be the fun in that story too? So we have to find, I have to find ways to have them there, but they can't necessarily come in and just start killing everything all at once. It's sort of like saying, well, all guys are bad guys. And they, wait, Dan Abnett used to have this thing that bad guys don't wake up in the morning, decide they're going to nail a baby to their head. There's, there's a reason they act the way they do. And, and the same thing with dragons. You just, you can't, it's great to have them. We need to use them, but they have to be used responsibly in these stories. Otherwise it, it sort of takes the suspense out of it. 
Right, you just get a Deus Ex Machina. Like, oh, what should we do at the end? We'll just send in the dragon. Everything will be fine. That'll be good. And there was some there was some nice. Um, it's slightly outside the Elf Arc, but there was some nice. I really enjoyed the you know the mysterious priest with his kind of with his kind of uh, hidden backstory. And was there a temptation to kind of explore that a bit more? It kind of feels like an abridged idea for a longer story. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of think if I ever get a chance to write any more in this, uh, if my editor will let me. I'd like to explore that a little bit more because there's a whole thing about obviously magic and the, the, the different sects within Mantic world are, are not, they don't, it's not over present overbearing, but it's still there. And I'd like to look into that. I mean, to a certain extent, the story was based a little bit on Rourke's drift where we had this small group trying to hold up uh, against an overwhelming force. That's sort of an overarch, but then I, I put it, put our own spin to it. Right, you just have to um, not invite him for Christmas until he lets you. That's uh... there's that too. There's that. <laughs> yeah, but I thought it was a really nice kind of glimpse into the world of the elves, and I think you know the elves sometimes get a little bit of a bad rap, and it, it kind of put them into the picture a little bit more about how they are depicted as a race. We've talked about it already a little bit as a younger race who are developing and who are part an active part of the world and will get bigger. I think perhaps the temptation from Mantic side is to explore their own ip a little bit more so i'm not sure we'll necessarily get stories on the traditional elves i think we're going to be heading up north a lot more particularly as version three comes around you know there's a lot of hints because obviously the ice elves you know the northern alliance is an elven faction with a lot of other races in it but i think that's where we'll be looking next but they're still elves and so i think we'll still get some exploration up there and i'll be interested to see how that is that how, how that is explored going forwards yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing is, and, and what we tried to do in there, I think if we in the future we'll try and do as well, is we don't want trope elves, you know, pointy ears, uh, ever, you know, ever knowing, very stoic. They know something you don't know and they're not telling you type thing. I mean, they're, they, they should act as creatures of knowledge. Yes, they do have it, but they're not perfect and they can be mercurial and they should be very intense characters they should be multifaceted right and flawed in their own particular way as well and i think that's one of the nice things that the mantic universe does is it explores some of the flaws in the races and despite being you know powerful and ancient i think you know arrogance and some of the kind of laissez-faire way that elves treat the world is possibly part of their downfall and the reason they're often the, the fall guy within the mantic world yeah i mean the thing you you don't want to do is and this is not ex exclusive to elves. It means they just they just take for granted other people in a way that they think maybe they're lesser, um, and they can be fooled by that, and that that can lead to their downfall. Yeah, and I think there's some of the the disregard for other races that was built into both of the stories, both uh, you know your story and and the Bloodstone of Cerulean, where they are more human than we've come to expect, but there is still that kind of that kind of racial tension, if you like, which which is a backbone of a lot of uh, fantasy stories, but it's, it's definitely worth exploring to see if we can take it in different directions. So I'll be interested about how that, that kind of plays out in a, in a multi-race environment up in the, in the Northern Alliance. Yes, uh, we're, we're excited. Uh, I, like I said, I think there's a lot of really great things we're, we're going to be doing with that. Um, we've got some interesting stories coming up, so hopefully we'll be able to explore it in more detail. Assuming Ronnie gives us more information to work with, you know, we'll just make this stuff up as we go along. Yeah, just make it. Oh, it's better to ask for <laughs> forgiveness than permission. I exactly, find. exactly. No, we're yeah. we have a very good relationship with Mantic. We run everything by them so that they are not surprised. What, what do you mean? 
elves have horns. That's not supposed to happen. <laughs> but, you know, we do bounce things off of them because we are, it is sort of, we are developing the lore with them. We've taken what they've got and we're trying to build it up. Now, Vince, Night Stalkers, that's Matt Gilbert's army. And uh, you work right. really closely with Mantic. So did you involve yourself or check with Matt Gilbert or get some information from him before you wrote your story? You know, when I had questions about things, I, I submitted it out to them just to see how they felt about it. Uh, probably not as much as I would have liked to, but that's, be, that's my fault. I should have asked more questions, I think, because I really would have liked to get it. But I think overall we went through it. They, they read through it. They gave me feedback on it. So we're, I think we're all in a good shape. Now, did Matt drop you a line and let you know what he thought about the story? Uh, he did not specifically, but he's a very busy guy. And uh, right now we had a, he, they had that thing going on. They had a few other uh, releases they were preparing. And we were trying to develop a few other background things. So it didn't, didn't get into it that much. I'm sure next time I see him, he will point out 17 things I did wrong. But that's okay. We're, we're good. It's too late right now because it's part of the canon, so uh, he's going to have to deal with it. I was going to say, he didn't pull it from the shelf, so we're all good right now, so it's official. Yeah, and that's how things happen. So do we think there's going to be changes for the elves in third edition, or we're just going to keep uh, expanding the story? Because you're expanding the world, and that's going to give us more opportunities to find more elves. Right, so as far as we're concerned, I mean, I've not, to, to be honest, I've not seen any particular changes that are coming through. They've not shared it with me, at least. Brandon may be a little bit more in the loop on this, but I think as and when they decide to make significant changes, we will know about it and we'll put it in there. But we're going to try to push the development of elves, as well as the other races of Mantic, uh, as far as we can, as far as filling them out, giving you more information, giving you more background, developing more of a sense of community for them. Yes, it's, we're entering a very exciting time because literally the world of possibilities is opening up because you've gone from a continent to a world now. And as you know, our world contains a lot of people and a lot of different races and a lot of variations on cultures and the whole banana. I mean, this has just opened up unbelievable possibilities. Like I said, I mean, the, the elves of Mantica are already have a lot of different varieties. I can't imagine what we're going to find on the other continents and stuff like that. So we've, we have opened up a can of worms, so to speak, and I can't wait to see what happens with it. It's really going to be amazing. Funny right. you mention that. Uh, so I can let you know a little bit about something that has been top, top secret. Well, relatively top secret till, till now. And that's, um, uh, Clint Werner's doing a three book series on basically the, origin story of the mantic world and that book's going to be coming out in the first of the year wow that is super exciting yeah now is that just three books on the same topic or three different seminal points in the history of mantica i think it's like a continuing three book like continuing story so that's basically going to take like the fluff that's in the beginning of the rule book and expand it out and blow it into three novels then huh and provide new information that you've never known before. Well, it would have to, so that's exciting. I think that's really interesting because one of the things, I, I don't know if you've listened to the Weight of Fire interview with Matt Gilbert, but um, he was talking about the fact that version 3 is is 10 years on. 
Okay, so we're looking at um, the future of the world. So uh, the world has moved on, the the, uh, flood has receded, and we're we're dealing with the consequences of that, as well as the expanded world with new factions. But he did reference that we're going to be looking back. And I think it gives some of that rounder view, doesn't it? Because the temptation is to move ever onwards and ever onwards. But a lot of that past world has never been explored uh, about how the race is really came about and some of that this must be hundreds of stories that could be told quite interesting stories about how some of these characters came about exactly and and also the important thing is everything in the past at some point is going to influence something in the future and there may be things that happen now that you don't know why they occur or how they've interacted and some of this stuff will be explained some of the stuff will just lead to more questions but whatever it it, it'll just be more entertaining for everyone involved in it. And I think it's something to get excited about because we're, I think Mantic and, and us are, are just trying to work to really just give the fans more background, more information so that they get a fuller view of, of the world. It's no longer a one-dimensional game. It's a multifaceted universe. Well, exactly, because, I mean, we've got the RPG coming out soon. You've got it on uh, the tabletop game with Dungeon Saga. You know, we're getting the novels. We've got to do your own adventure book. I mean, uh, all that's coming together. And, you know, the other thing, too, is Kings of War might be 10 years on, but really the fluff is much younger than that. I mean, we just literally got our first official full-length novel uh, for second edition, and we've finally you know we started off with an anthology and i mean this is very very young so i i don't consider it 10 years on i'm considering a year on <laughs> at this point so you know you're looking at a very very short window where the fluff has really been delved into i remember listening to some other podcasts and listening to them and they're like well let's talk about this unit and then they read the little bit of unit fluff and they're like well that's all we know so Let's talk about him in the game. <laughs> so it's like, literally, I mean, it, just now is is Pandora's box being opened and is all this information and everything is coming out of it and it's going to start filling the world out, So, which is very exciting. And I mean, it's being timed with kind of the release of 3rd Edition and the expanse from a continent into a world. So, I mean, it's just going to go... A panathea's yeah. box, you might say. Yeah, and, and the thing is, we are, you know, obviously we're trying to get novels out as quickly as we can. It's just, like anything else, it all takes time to do. You have to go through the process of, we've, we've got a bunch of different synopsis we're working on, got them to prove by Mantic, and then in the process there, as you're going along, you're going to have questions where you're going to make, we have to make sure that it still fits in right with everything. You know, and we are creating characters. Let's face it. The, the the thing about the novels is any name character Mantic has may appear somewhere as a background character. But we're at the moment, we're not necessarily doing something about them. But we are creating new characters, new fluff, a new background. And one of the great things I think uh, Mark Barber did and Branstock and some other people is they've asked the community for information about characters that may be circulating around there. And trying to put a nod to them in stories. Yes, I'm looking forward to when Skullface actually becomes a named character in the game. Hey, you never know, third edition's coming. That's opening up wide possibilities, too. So do you know, Vince, were you guys involved at all with uh, expanding the fluff in the third edition rulebook? I I hear we're getting more fluff there. I don't know who's writing it. I've not been, but, you know, they have have the team working there in in, uh, Mantic offices. 
chained to their desk doing stuff all the time. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you're, it's, it's all coming right from, right from the horse's mouth and just to paper. Uh, but we'll be involved at some point in there as expanding it and working with them. That's great, because like we've discussed on previous podcasts, it's all about stitching it all together and combining and working together. So that would be terrific, because, I mean, anytime you have an edition change, you know, we were joking around on one of the chats that, uh, you know, we should start basing our miniatures on hexagon bases, and uh, do we have to burn our second edition Kings of War armies now and everything else? So, I mean, obviously everybody gets a little edgy on there, but, uh, you know, again, hopefully more fluff is coming, and some people are not fluff bunnies. They just want to play the game, and, you know, other people, they're all about the fluff, and, you know, the game is secondary, so it'll be very interesting to see what the balance is coming in third edition. Yeah, I mean, like anything else, it just takes time. And and you keep in mind we're both we're we're a smaller company, so it takes us a little while to put everything together. And then you know, Mantic is not you. They're a big company, but they're not huge. They don't have infinite resources, so they're working on it as quickly as they can, as well to get everything done in a timely fashion. I think it's a very exciting time. The big thing about when you're when you play a game and you're into it, you're all into it. You like to background and everything else. I, I was forced now because of doing this to start painting Mantic figures for this. And you know how much it's just adding to my painting table. I love it. But you get into it and then that you have to collect and create stuff. So now I've got a couple of units of undead ready and some necromancers and I'm I'm going to Night Stalkers next. So it's uh you know it's it's a dangerous drug. I have the opposite problem. Why I have too many things on my table that I don't want to paint. And now <laughs> my wife sat down next to me. She goes, what's in this box? And I'm like, oh, that's, that's sprues. And she's like, these are all models. And I've got this big wooden box just full of sprues that I've either half done or I've not quite finished. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to them. I'm definitely going to get to them. And she picks up this dead zone box. She's like, what's this? And I'm like that. I haven't started that yet or actually read the rule book, but that's coming to, she picks up another box. And I'm like, can we stop talking now? Because this is going to be a problem. Yeah, but see, Doug, since you understand it's the Dorian Gray rule, as long as you have boxes of models that you haven't painted, you can live forever. The minute you don't have any more left, you're in trouble. <laughs> well, immortality is mine. So that's Yes, good. there you go. That's, that's the way I look at it, because I've got a huge pile of stuff I've not gotten to yet. So. But I've been doing this a long time. I've been doing it a long time as well. I, I think I still have Warhammer 4th edition, 3rd edition stuff that I haven't painted yet. So I'm, a, I'm never going to die. I've got several lifetimes yet ahead of me. So Yeah, see? see? I don't know. I, that's one of the big problems. It's like, you know, you get this stuff and it's like you work really hard during the workday. And then, you know, it's like, oh, you see the super cool stuff. And it's like, boy, I'm going to get that done. And then you buy it. And then it. You know, then you see the next thing and you go, oh, wow, that's so cool. I'm going to get that done. And then it piles on top of each other. It's just kind of the way it works. It's just, you know, it's something in all of us that enjoy this hobby. You know, it's just what makes it fun. It's kind of a hobby in and of itself, just collecting the sprues. So, but my wife didn't like that explanation. So I work very long hours uh, doing what we do. I always try to at least leave myself a half hour, 40 minutes to paint because I find it allows me to unwind after a day. And as long as you're patient with it and just take it like eating an elephant, little bits at a time, you're, you're all good. Absolutely. So you won't be starting a uh, horde army anytime. So, well, you're doing undead, depending. I mean, you can go elite or you can go horde with that. So 
Absolutely. Yeah, you, you can never tell. I, I haven't decided yet. Very, very cool. All right. Well, hey, guys, uh, why don't we go ahead, slide into a commercial break. We'll come back on the other side. We'll do shout-outs and wrap up the show. This is Andrew Summers, Martyr of the Brotherhood, and you are listening to Countercharge. And welcome back. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a fantastic episode. I love talking about the elves, and this was a really good discussion today. I hope everyone is really, really appreciate it. So time for shout-outs. So, Steve, what do you got for us? Any shout-outs? So I suppose I should shout-out uh, to Muck and Grant. It was really great to meet them and to enjoy their company. Hang on. I haven't thought this through. Sorry. <laughs> well, typically, we usually have Mark and Grant on the episode, and uh, it's just gotten so busy lately. It's unbelievable. I didn't have a chance to get them scheduled to do the hype up. So do you know if they're going to be doing sleigh bells ringing again in the wintertime? Or? Well, Mark's got some crazy project he's trying to organize where he's having some, I think he's like, like a 50,000-point army battle. Or something, something crazy. So the thing about Mark is I've discovered is that apart from hating elves, he likes to do things. He likes to go big or go home. And so it's a crazy lists, crazy ideas, crazy tournaments. But uh, maybe we should get him on to talk about his 50,000 uh, strong army battle that he's working on. But uh, I'm sure they will definitely continue to run uh, Shroud of the Reaper events and take it forward to, to from strength to strength. Um, and we just had a new release date for the UK Masters, so they've brought it forward to coincide with third edition release, so people can wrap up their second edition tournament, so that should be quite fun. Terrific. Now, I didn't hear, when is the UK Masters now? So there's some tentative date has been put in for the first week of December. I think December the 6th is what Nick was saying, um, but some of the key players can't. December 7th, I want to say. I might have that date wrong. Please check the UK Masters site for the appropriate date. But so they're just discussing that at the minute. Um, but yeah, that should be quite fun because then they can just crack straight on into third edition with the new season of the the Masters kind of rotation. So that will be uh, quite interesting. And they're doing it slightly differently this year. So they're doing it as an open tournament. He mentioned it when we had the Masters episode. But the plan is that anyone can come. It's not just the kind of the 16 that are at the top of the table. because It's a much smaller pool that we're drawing from in the UK here. But um Anyone can come along, so there'll be a Masters tournament and there'll be a kind of an also-rans tournament, so you can be the best of the rest. Um, and they're trying to make it quite a big event. So that should be uh, quite interesting. It's in Derby in the Midlands. Sounds fantastic, yeah. That should be a good time. That is something I have always been a proponent of, is not just having it to just be the Masters showing up, but have the Masters and also the adjunct tournament. So best of the rest. I love it. That is terrific. A big tip of the hat to Nick Williams. So Vince, my friend, any shout outs today? Uh, just to the fans who are buying um, uh, Edge of the Abyss and Step to Deliverance and uh, just ask that you keep on going out and buying it or talking about it. And uh, look forward to seeing people at a couple of local uh, sci-fi conventions. Sounds good. Sounds good. And if we have any budding authors out there, uh, you guys are still taking submissions? or We will still take submissions. You know, like anything else, you have to uh, provide us with an outline of the story and a sample of writing so we can get a feel for what you can do. But yeah, go to the website, which is wingedhusserpublishing.com, and you can just send us an email and uh, we'll, we'll respond to you. All right. And for myself, of course, I'm going to shout out EasyArmy.com. Can you spot Blaster on the page? EasyArmy.com is the official sponsor of the Narrative Workshop. So please consider tossing Greg a donation for all of his hard work, a few pounds, a few dollars. 
doesn't matter which variety of currency, throw it over his way as a big thank you for his hard work for the community. We really appreciate it. And I'll say it again, I'm sure he's hard at work working away on the third edition page. And uh, I hope the second edition page stays around, but uh, we'll see if it does. But third edition, I'm sure he's chained, and I would love to get him on the air to talk all about it. But I have tried, folks, but um, I haven't gotten it done yet. But we'll see what happens in the future. Also, I wanted to mention that in the old days, we used to let you know all about the upcoming tournaments here on Countercharge. But now there are so many, it is hard to keep up with them all. Until now, head over to kowtournaments.com to check out all of the King's Award tournament action. Well, hey, that's all I got for today. So, uh, Steve, why don't you go ahead and take us out? Uh, whatever you do, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons. 